Welcome to Oh No, Ross and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal, but take part ourselves. Yep, when they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Carrie Poppy. And I'm Ross Blotcher. And we are thrilled to have with us today, I think you're all going to be very excited about this, Mike Rinder. And uh, if you don't already know the name, he was a former executive within Scientology really uh, reporting directly to David Miscavige. And you've probably seen him on Leah Remini's Scientology, the Aftermath series. Welcome, Mike. Hi, guys. It's it's great to be with you. I have enjoyed your coverage of Scientology immensely. We saw you tweeting about us and we thought, uh, oh, wow, he actually knows who we are. Oh, I, I love your shows. The ones where you were in L.A. Org, I thought were strokes of genius. Oh, gosh. Not, not just because... No, well, nobody has ever done something like that before, and I thought it was very articulate and humorous and insightful, and that's a that's not an easy combination. Oh, thank you so much, Mike. That means so much. Thank you. High praise. I mean, it couldn't come from a more worthy source. I mean, hearing that is really incredible. Thank you. Well, first of all, I'd like to say just thank you for the work that you and Leah have done on Scientology, The Aftermath. It's an amazing series that really focuses on the the heart of, of people who have been affected by Scientology and that story. But uh, I was so impressed by the second season that it went into even more detail, but kept that heart. It's so important, and I encourage everyone to see it. Well, well, thanks. It is a... You know, Leah and I talk about it sometimes. It's perhaps the most difficult thing we have ever done and also the most satisfying thing that we have ever done. As you know, it can be rather stressful when you're engaging with Scientology on any level. And when we are confronted by or hear these stories from people that are so heartbreaking and so... Uh, emotionally charged and have so many similarities to experiences that we may have had. It's, it's not all, uh, fun and games, rainbows and butterflies in, in putting this show together. On the other hand, when we hear from so many people and so many who have suffered abuses or pain at, at the hands of Scientology, as a response to the show, it's kind of overwhelming almost. Mm -hmm. It's it's really, really special and very important, and it kind of keeps us going when things seem a little bleak. Yeah. So you said it's one of the hardest things you've ever done, and I feel like that is you know, surprising to hear in a way because you went through something so difficult for so many years within Scientology. So do you feel like, revisiting it is even more painful? I'm not sure that it's revisiting it being more painful, Carrie. I think that there is certainly an element to that. I, I think that in some ways, uh, you know, I sort of come have come to, to terms with my, or at least I feel to some extent, I've come to terms with my own uh, experiences. It's harder, I think, to witness the experience of others and particularly those who haven't had much opportunity to express themselves mm. and see the the raw emotions coming to the surface and in in real time kind of going through the experience with the person of reliving the the pain that they <laughs> suffered is is pretty tough to watch i mean a lot of the shows, we have to edit so much out because it's just Leah and me sitting there bawling our eyes out. And it, it's, wow. that's hard. It's very hard. And it's hard not to be empathetic for those people who are talking about their experiences and to admire them for the bravery that they have of telling their story on national TV. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's not an easy thing to do. And especially it's not easy when you know 
that you're talking about an organization that is notoriously vindictive. Yeah. So I don't know. There's a lot of elements to it. I'm not sure if I even really answered your question, but I'm just, I ramble on. <laughs> you did. I, I did wanted... ramble on. No, <laughs> yeah, no. I did. <laughs> yeah, you, you did answer the question. Uh, maybe you could give uh, our listeners just a, a sense of kind of what your personal history was within Scientology. Mm-hmm. I know you started at a young age. What drew you to the church and what was your kind of rise to the top? Well, nothing drew me to the church. I was basically raised a Scientologist. My parents got involved when I was five or six years old. And, you know, in Scientology, the it's an entire way of life and an entire worldview. And I was indoctrinated with that from a very young age and all through growing up. And my view of what, you know, people ask, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my answer, although I wouldn't say it to anybody other than my family, was I want to join the Sea Org. Mm-hmm. I want to go work with L. Ron Hubbard. That was what every good Scientologist aspires to. It's, you know, in the Middle Ages, good uh, Catholics aspired to <laughs> join the church. I was destined to end up in the sea organization and that's what i did and in 1973 when right after i had turned 18 i went to join the sea organization and l ron hubbard on board his ship the apollo in portugal mm-hmm. and from there i sort of rose through the ranks ultimately to become the international spokesperson for Scientology and on the board of the Church of Scientology International and wow. uh, the head of the Office of Special Affairs for many years until I left in 2007. So for a lot of people who are in Scientology, I feel like L. Ron Hubbard is this almost fairy tale who, you know, they've never met and they just have these visions of, but you actually knew the man. What was he like? A massive contradiction a in some ways a very gregarious and funny and entertaining storyteller and you know at the time when i knew him i believed every one of his stories and he seemed to know about everything and was extremely widely read and could you know riff on virtually anything with great authority whether he actually knew what he was talking about or not, I didn't have a clue at this point. Uh, in fact, I suspect often he did not, but it was very entertaining. And, you know, if you read Russell Miller's wonderful unauthorized biography of L. Ron Hubbard, he really paints the picture. And, and that was, by the way, a book that I recommend everybody read. And Barefaced Messiah. Barefaced Messiah. And it had a profound impact on me after I had left the Sea Organization to read that book because he recounts that from the youngest age, Hubbard was a storyteller. You can call him kindly a storyteller and, and <laughs> less kindly a lying sack of shit. But either way, he had the ability to invent stories and often he was the central character of those stories that he invented and stories that he told and he would take things that had some kernel of truth and when he was young and his father was in the navy and he ended up going to guam and then you know spending two days in in china somewhere that gets translated into uh, an exploration of the ancient history and and civilization of China and meeting with magical mystery men in the western hills and blah 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 the truth is far more mundane mm-hmm. and i think that that is uh, that tells a lot about the truth of L Ron Hubbard is the incredible flamboyant all knowing all seeing all knowledgeable man is really just a mundane kind of guy that was good at telling stories and very smart because he developed a system of 
convincing people to believe him and to buy into his worldview that is really, really, if you're looking for a model of how do you suck someone in and take their money and keep it all because it's tax-free, you would be really hard-pressed to find a better one than Scientology. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. W was there anything at the time about him or his behavior that was a red flag or that in retrospect you looked back on and said, oh, I, you know, that should have clued me in. There was something wrong with him. Like, I don't think so, Russ. I, if I look back now and, uh, and if I was me now back then, I would look at everything and go, whoa, this should clue me in. This is crazy. You know, he's sitting here dictating things to people left, right, and center, and, the, and they're just rambling dissertations about everything and anything, and he is claiming to do research and whole track research and developing things from, you know, remembering things from millions or trillions of years ago and then presenting them as, well, this is how things are and da 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 da. Great but memory. At the time, uh, terrific memory. <laughs> yeah. Terrific memory. But at the time, it seemed like this is the the man who has discovered the answers to all of life and unlocked the keys to eternity and the universe and etc cetera, etc cetera. so i was way more starstruck or forgiving of anything that might be seen as an oddity or an uh you know a red flag and ascribing them all to some good reason and you know, that's not unique to Scientology. It's not even unique to me. I mean, I look around mm -hmm. and see people excusing behavior of people all the time. And to an outsider, you look at it and go, this is crazy. Like, yeah. you can go on TV and try and defend someone calling Africa a shithole. <laughs> How the hell do you do that? Mm -hmm. But those people really are there thinking there is a good explanation and a good justification, and I'm going to explain this, and I'm going to make sense out of it. You're trying, defending the indefensible, and you could say, you know, 10 years on, well, didn't it seem like a red flag to you at the time? Well, no. That's why I went on national TV defending <laughs> the indefensible. I went on national TV defending the indefensible. I did the same thing. And... It's sort of uh, humbling to look back and think of how gullible I was and how uninformed I was, but it is what it is, and I can't pretend it didn't happen. Well, you were also six when you entered Scientology, is that right? Yes, that's... <laughs> so I don't think we can, yeah, discount, I mean, your growing brain, you know, growing up in this system, how do you ever break out of that? I mean, at least until adulthood. Yeah, but, you know, I was an adult in Scientology for a long time, too, mm -hmm. so I I don't try, or at least I don't think I try, to look back on my history with a lot of regret and a lot of sadness, although mm -hmm. I guess I could. I try and look at it as, you know, I have lived a life that has been very unusual, I, I have had a lot of experiences and done a lot of things that a lot of other people ne will never have the chance to do. And it has, it has landed me somewhere where I am now extremely well prepared to do what I am doing now. Absolutely. Yeah. So now your your career has has become sort of the opposite, right? Tackling Scientology. Do you ever get tired of talking about Scientology all day? Sure. <laughs> well, welcome to this podcast. Yeah. You, you, well, you say incredibly tuned in, which impresses me. We, we were both surprised and impressed and, and thrilled when we found out you knew about our show. We'd just love to get kind of your reaction hearing these bumbling people stumble into Scientology at the entry level and uh, experience it in the Los Angeles area. Well, I, I think that what you did was pretty remarkable because I don't think anybody has done that before. I don't think anybody has 
walked into the Church of Scientology and gone as far as you went into the organization and reported on it and reported on it with, with some humor, but also with great insight and with a perspective that is very difficult for people to get. It's virtually impossible to hear an outsider's view of what it's like going into Scientology because you're either doing it yourself or you have to rely on someone telling you this is what you would experience right. rather than here is what happened to us. You know, we walked in and then Joe Blow came up to us and he said this and he gave us this test and there there was 200 questions on there and we answered the questions and then they told us this and we had to sit and wait and we had to do this and we had it was very very realistic like i know what it's like i think any person who has been involved in scientology knows how accurate what you portrayed was i don't think you went out of your way to just make fun of and deride people but certainly there is a lot of comical aspects to what happens when you're dealing with people who literally are walking around in a mind bubble. Mm -hmm. You know, their self-awareness is very low. It's what happens when you live in an environment where everybody has to think the same and what's acceptable behavior and unacceptable behavior is the same for everybody. So the level of self-awareness and the level of understanding of how what they say impacts other people, people outside of their bubble, is very, very low. Mm -hmm. And it's entertaining and sort of comical and somewhat sad to mm -hmm. hear the way that these people talk as if this is what everybody thinks and this mm -hmm. is what everybody and if you don't think this way there's something probably wrong with you and we can help you with that right. and it's kind of crazy like just from that outside perspective it's kind of crazy short of going and and doing it yourself and possibly <laughs> falling victim to the to the pitch, you, there isn't anywhere else to go to get that kind of perspective. I, I refer people to your podcast often as, you want to know what it's like going into a church of Scientology? Here, listen to this. Wow, oh thank you. Thank you. And ostensibly, we're doing exactly what they would recommend to anybody on the outside. They'd say, well, you have questions about Scientology? Come try it yourself. And that's what we did. So that Absolutely. then we can kick you out and tell you that you shouldn't come back. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And that is what's so amazing and charming and interesting about what you guys did. I can't commend you highly enough because you've done something that a lot of people wish that they could have done and never have pulled off. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, did it surprise you that it took them so long to figure us out? Yes. It took them like two months. <laughs> Yes, it did surprise me. Did frankly. you feel they'd gotten sloppy? Well, how would you have handled pesky podcasters like us when you were in charge of you know, this sort of thing? Um, I think that there would have been far more suspicion cast your way from the very outset. And I don't doubt that anybody else that goes in and tries to do it now is going to have a much higher level of scrutiny than you guys managed to get. They were taken a little unawares. Look, this is another thing about Scientology that I, I try and stress to people. Generally, Scientologists are not bad people. To be a Scientologist does not mean that you are an ignorant, blubbering bumpkin that fell off the turnip truck yesterday. Right. What Scientology appeals to quite cleverly is people's desire to be able to help create a better world, to be able to help other people. You will hear routinely that the benefit of Scientology is not just to you, but that it gives you the skills and tools to be able to help others to help your family, to communicate, to have better relationships, to do this, to do that. 
and ultimately to bring about a wall, a world without wall, without insanity, where honest people have rights and man is free to rise to greater heights. These very altruistic things are the biggest hooks for people in Scientology. Mm -hmm. They are what attracts people and keep them hooked. And the people for which those things are important are generally good people. They're not mm -hmm. bad people. You know, naturally, you you run into these staff members in the Los Angeles org, and their really sincere belief is that they hold the answers to the universe in their hands, and their hands alone, and they want everybody else to have it. And if you come in and you act a little strange or whatever, it's okay because we will be able to help you, and that's what motivates those people. At that level, those people that first, and many of the people, aren't just interested in getting your money. And this is what's so sort of odd. Because ultimately, the organization is driven by the need to get your money and the need to have you constantly involved. The individual people, so it's like this odd dichotomy. The individual people are kind of good, good little guys, you know, on the treadmill yeah. of the machine. And that machine is driven by money, but the people themselves are not. Those guys that are trying to get you into Scientology, they're earning $20 a week. Right. They're earning $40 a week. Those people are not there for the money. Right. They'll surely take yours, but they are not <laughs> there for the money. Well, one thing I was fascinated to learn from the aftermath, as after this podcast, we've learned additional information about the church. It's really colored my perception of what happened to us while we were there. For example, learning that it's very common for those registration desks to be tapped, to have microphones there where a supervisor can listen in and hear the sales tactics and know whether we can, we're convinced or not or how. It's, it's just fascinating to learn from kind of the inside from voices like yours uh, what was actually going on while we were there. And and it's not only very common, it's uh, policy. It's like standard procedure to have it that way. If they don't have it that way, there's something wrong. And when you're in Los Angeles org, which is one of David Miscavige's, quote, ideal orgs, guarantee you they have recording systems set up for every reg area or every registration or person fundraiser that you came in contact with. Mm. Amazing. So when I entered the Valley Org just a couple weeks ago, and they immediately spotted me, do you think that that was just because someone had memorized my face or because someone suggested they have facial recognition technology? What do you think the process was there? They have facial recognition technology, i.e. they have a book with pictures in it <laughs> called the, uh, literally called the Rogues, Rogues Gallery. Gallery. Right. Okay. And they have pictures, and you two are probably right near the front. I'm, I'm, yes. Leah wow. Remini yeah. and Mike Rinda are probably like, like on the cover. And then <laughs> up near the front is people like you, Antonio Ortega, and, you know, uh, Larry Wright, and Alex Gibney, and the people that have created the most heartache in, in the heart of the organization. And, uh -huh. So they have someone there that is, you know, if, if some new person, any new person walks in, they certainly have cameras and they have a security, probably a little security office there that, that has a bunch of monitors and someone sitting there watching the monitors. You've seen all the cameras on the outside of mm -hmm. all these buildings. Well, oh, yeah. there's cameras on the inside too and no doubt trained on the reception and they look and the security guy is sitting there and watching and he doesn't have anything else to do all day because there's nobody else in the building. So he watches everybody that walks in the front door or anybody that walks in the front door. And he quickly leafs through his little book to see, does this look like one of these, one of these people? And okay. then wow. if, and then he'll run out there and like get an eyeball to see, mm, yep, it is. And then the next thing you know, you're being asked to kindly take your place back on the sidewalk. 
I was just going to say, on one hand, we're thrilled to be included in a book like that. But on on the other hand, I just I can only imagine, first of all, just a church that has a book like that. What does that say? But for the person studying this book, it's a study of the enemies of your belief set. And what does that tell you that there are so many people that are opposed to uh, what you're doing? Well, it's kind of like everything in Scientology to us. This is, oh my God, can you imagine having a book full of people who are opposed to your ideology? On the other hand, in their mind, there is a handful of suppressive people who have banded together and they are intent upon destroying mankind's only hope. Mm -hmm. So this small handful of people, even if it's a hundred, if it's 200, it's a tiny number of people compared to the 20 million Scientologists who are happily practicing their religion and saving the world. So everything's a matter of perspective. Yeah. yeah. It's really funny, though, because someone on Twitter told me, oh, they have facial recognition technology now. And I, I knew about the rogues gallery, but I thought, oh, OK, now they have like technology. Now I'm realizing, of course, that's Scientology terminology for technology, which is a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's like the paper files. A, a right. memo from L. Ron Hubbard. That's technology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, yeah, speaking of tech, do you think that any of the tech in Scientology was actually useful but just mishandled? I think that there is I think there are things in Scientology that are perfectly useful, and much of it is not unique to Scientology. And this is another thing is the myth that everything in Scientology, you know, sprung forth from the fevered brow of L. Ron Hubbard uh-huh. as this is all-knowing wisdom that only he was able to come up with. You know, the, the cons- many of the concepts that you find in basic Scientology are things that you can recognize from all sorts of different places, e- even down to the golden rule, which gets turned into the way to happiness. And right. that's, not a, that's not an odd concept. It's not an odd concept to be, have a Phaeton mind body or a mm. spirit thought machine and physical presence in the world. You know, you go back to, to the Vedic hymns and, and all the way back to the time of Buddha and etc. And there's a lot of these concepts of transcending the physical and etc. etc. Absolutely. Those things. Those things are very prevalent in fundamental Scientology, and I don't think that they are harmful. And I think that people believe them, and the belief in them makes them not a better person or a worse person. Actually, I think generally it might make them a better person. I generally believe that people who have some spiritual bent, whatever it may be, tend to be more thoughtful and more considerate and considerate of the the needs of others, perhaps. But some of the things that, that you learn about communication or how to communicate or the drills that you practice on communicating, I think that those things can be very helpful. On the right. other hand, I don't think that L. Ron Hubbard uniquely discovered the only formula for communication right you know it's just kind of ridiculous to assume that but on the the other hand it's ridiculous in my mind to just dismiss everything and say because it's now stated by l ron hubbard that means it's not true Mm -hmm. so there are good ideas within scientology but you don't really need l ron hubbard to believe them or maintain them correct Carrie here, I just have to interrupt this fascinating talk because, eh, you know, there's only so much fascinating talk you can hear before you get tired. Am I right? I mean, I know how that is for me. Sometimes in the middle of an interview, I'm like, you know what I'd love to do? I'd love to take a nap. Well, maybe that's how you're feeling too. And you should go to Brooklinen and get some new sheets. I have Brooklinen sheets. Ross has Brooklyn and Sheets. You guys, this is how you sleep and feel good about it because there's silky soft smoothness all over your skin. 
You can upgrade your nightly routine with Brooklinen because they're dedicated to helping you feel more rested every day. And I know sometimes I don't feel well rested. And when I don't feel well rested, you know what happens? I get a migraine. You don't want that. You want to feel all nice and toasty and wonderful in your bed. And Brooklinen believes that beautiful home essentials don't need to have all these markups and fees. They don't need to be all expensive and all fancy. You can get the fancy and not the expensive part. So they have over 12,000 five-star reviews. That is at least 60,000 stars. And they come in all these beautiful colors and patterns you can mix and match. Maybe you want pink sheets, but you want uh, gray pillowcases. Don't worry, they got it. And Brooklyn has an exclusive offer for our listeners, for Ono, Ross, and Carrie listeners. You can get $20 off and free shipping if you use our special code ONO, O-H-N-O, at brooklinen.com. And Brooklinen's so confident about how much you're going to like their sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all their sheets and comforters. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Excuse me. What more could you want out of this deal? I do not know. So to get $20 off and free shipping, use the promo code ONO, O-H-N-O, at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N. Dot com promo code oh no have you seen anything in scientology's behavior its public relations since you left that has been a big shift have you seen them kind of reposition or change their tactics or have they ever surprised you or do they just kind of stick to the book of what l ron hubbard has told them they surprise me almost every day by sticking to the exact insane things <laughs> that are dictated by the writings of L. Ron Hubbard. They keep doing the same thing over and over, no matter how many times it is proven to be a disaster. And they keep doing it. And They can't you know, help they, themselves. They cannot, because L. Ron Hubbard says, this is what you do. And if the result is not good, it simply means that you didn't do it exactly as he said it should be done. Hmm. You altered it in some fashion. So you are at fault and you've got to keep doing it until you get it right. Scientology seems to like so well bounce between appearing omniscient and on top of it and at the same time being incompetent. For example, you know, we're on this rogues gallery. They know to spot us if we show up at a location. And yet they keep sending me letters from the Celebrity Center trying to get me to take more courses. <laughs> it, it is. It's like it's like a Rube Goldberg machine. It's, <laughs> it's all these moving pieces and parts that have been dictated by L. Ron Hubbard as this is how you do things. And they don't all fit together. And many of them are very outdated. And because L. Ron Hubbard didn't say what you do is you wash windows with Windex, it's newspaper and water. Mm -hmm. Because that mm. he said that you use newspaper <laughs> and water. He didn't say... He didn't say to send emails, so they keep sending handwritten letters that cost God. them 44 cents and have, have <laughs> someone put it, write an address on it and write the return address on it and in scratchy, scrawly handwriting that nobody can read, a one-line thing saying, why don't you come back? And that's because L. Ron Hubbard says that outflow and letters out is the measure and going to, to determine what the gross income of an organization is going to be. And that is going to stay that way until the end of time. And that just because you can't change that because L. Ron Hubbard said it. Hmm. Well, one thing that I think I've noticed change in their PR is that they used to take a fair amount of interviews. Now it seems like I never see a Scientologist on TV defending Scientology. The closest I've seen is a lawyer for Scientology who specifically said she wasn't a Scientologist. You, you are far more accurate in your response than I was, because <laughs> that is true. I mean, I used to be on TV all the time. I used to deal with reporters all the time. And it 
is something that I think is a reflection of Miscavige's increasing paranoia that he fears that someone is going to say something on live TV that might incriminate him personally. Mm. He won't do it himself. He doesn't trust anybody else not to throw him under the bus. So the only person that he will allow, or used to at least allow, speak was Muffins Yingling. And she showed up on ABC with that basket of muffins baked by <laughs> the, the slaves in at Golden Era Productions and blinked oh. her way into notoriety that will never be forgotten. And I think that that performance put an end to, to Monique's ability to be out there representing Miscavige anymore. So now there's nobody. So now nobody shows up and they don't respond and they don't answer. They just send legal threat letters. Mm. For the Masters of Communication, it is a little bit odd that nobody from Scientology can show up to communicate about Scientology. And, you know, I've also made the point, you know, you guys went to that event, whatever it was, New Year's event. Mm-hmm. How yeah. come those events are not, why aren't they inviting the press? Mm-hmm. Why aren't they inviting the world to those events? This is a, an enormous amount of time and money and effort and energy is devoted to making those events present the best possible picture of Scientology around the world. That is what those events are. They are convincing the internal Scientology public that we are doing wonderful things, that we're great, that everybody loves us, that governments love us, etc., etc., etc. If that's true, why aren't those events the ones that they desperately want the press to come to? Yeah, Carrie went to the New Year's event. I went to the uh, L. Ron Hubbard birthday celebration. And I think you intimated this on the show, which is, and, and just now, is that it's for the internal audience. And I remember on the show, you made a really good point that they have all these videos about the, the people in yellow shirts, the volunteers. They go out and they, you know, supposedly help victims of natural disasters. And they show all of this internally. But why wouldn't they release that to the news media? Because because they know that the news media, it wouldn't pass muster that they'd pick up on the deception. Exactly, because those things are staged and they're fake and they have, you know, government official from inner Zambia and nobody ever knows who this is and can't track the person down. And it turns out, if you probably could track them down, it's some guy on a local school board who got told that his picture was going to be used in the United States and would help him get a visa. It's mm-hmm. like it's like this crazy stuff. I mean, we did one thing on the show where we, they stupidly identified the Minister of Education of Taiwan or something, and mm-hmm. Aftermath wrote to him and said, do you know that your statement is being used by Scientology at their international events? And the response was, have no idea and never made that statement for them and do not believe in Scientology and don't support Scientology. And this is another thing that happens. These front groups get used. And it's the Way to Happiness Foundation. It's Applied Scholastics. It's Mm -hmm. Narconon. It's Criminon. All of these things, and they go out and they don't mention Scientology. They just do their good work and schmooze up to these guys. They get them to make a statement on video, and then they don't tell them that the video is for a Scientology event. They think that they're supporting some concerned businessmen's association who are helping children gain moral their moral compass. And the next thing you know, they're being shown in a Scientology event as if they fully support Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard. Wow. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. And and all of these front groups that the church has, I think, to to hide that, to hide what they're doing. Yeah. And it's funny, these front groups, when they get in trouble and someone sues them, Scientology says, we don't have anything to do with them. We're not connected. That's not us. Stay away from us. That's some independent thing. I don't have anything to do with us. And meanwhile, they have these events and David Miscavige stands on stage and talks about how we're 
changing the mm. changing the world and we have reduced the crime rate by 50% in the nation of Colombia by the right. distribution of the way to happiness booklets and we have brought about a stable society in Venezuela and you know these incredible statements about we do this and we do that and as soon as there is a problem with it it's not we who we white man this is them they did that it seems like Scientology has so perfected the art of plausible deniability and having it both ways where they can say, oh, here's all these amazing claims. But at the same time, oh, we're not making any claims. <laughs> exactly. Uh, speaking exactly. of having it both ways, L. Ron Hubbard can go to China for two weeks and be an expert in the Oriental arts. You can be in Scientology for 25 years. And they're like, that guy wasn't really a Scientologist. <laughs> right. <laughs> he was a nobody. It, yeah. We threw him out. We kicked him out. We kicked her out. They were unable to live up to the high ethical standards of Scientology in the last day. Uh, for 27 years before that, they were all perfectly good. But now in the last day, they were unable to live up to the incredibly high ethical standards of Scientology. And they beat their wife. And even though this person was the international spokesperson for the Church of Scientology all of this time, do you know that he beat his wife? Oh, my God. He's a wife beater. What and are you doing, doing promoting all these is. terrible people? <laughs> exactly. Right. So wow. you, you make a really good point, Carrie. There is no person who has ever left Scientology who is actually able to recount a true account of what happened in Scientology because, Amazing. A, they all lie. B, they knew nothing. C, they were just basically un unethical scumbags. Or D, they were blind and deaf and obviously could have known nothing of what really goes on. Right. If you had been a real Scientologist, you would still be one. Right. The no true Scotsman, but uh, exactly the no true Scientologist. <laughs> uh, you had made an implicit connection to Trump earlier, our current president. Uh, it reminded me, this conversation reminded me a bit of his dismissal of Steve Bannon, who had been his trusted advisor and chief strategist. And he says, oh, he has nothing to do with my presidency's sloppy Steve Bannon. And you're thinking, well, then why did you hire this guy and take him into your confidence? Uh, if that's the case, do you see uh, connections between kind of Scientology and our current political climate? I see similarities between insane statements to, to the press. I don't like to draw and get drawn into political discussions about whether uh, Trump or Democrats, Republicans mm. or communists are good, bad or indifferent, because I, I think that there are things to commend and things to criticize about every side of the political spectrum. Sure. But what I do see is these insane people appearing on TV or insane statements made to the press, which are very, very akin to the nuttiness that Hubbard has instilled. You know, the famous line when Hubbard did that one interview from Granada TV of on board the, the Apollo, well, what happened to the second wife? Oh, I didn't have a second <laughs> wife. Right. That blatant lie and and look donald trump is not the only one that engages in that sort of craziness he seems to have perfected the art of being able to say something today that's very different from what he said yesterday with a completely straight face and pretend what's what's your problem but my objection was if it's true and i don't know whether it is or not that he called Africa and Haiti shitholes. Mm -hmm. How do you go on TV and defend that? How right. can you go and try and defend it and the pretzel logic that you have to twist yourself into in order to defend that is what I was alluding to when I'm talking about the statements made by Scientology and the view that you have of Hubbard and well, he said it, so it must be right. Oh, the Van Allen, I was just out in the Van Allen space belt 
and you know it's not cold in space it's hot out there mm -hmm. or you know whatever nuttiness there is and someone tries to defend that instead mm -hmm. of just saying yep that's crazy <laughs> or, yep that's nuts and I don't I can't defend it they try yeah you've lived that experience of trying to defend nuttiness and you can now point to video of yourself on television saying things for the church like there's no disconnection policy or the whole Zenu story or Zimu, uh, however it's properly pronounced uh, I, that sounds crazy to me what are you talking about when when someone lies like that for the the person on the other side the interlocutor what what can they say to that what what would have been the best response to you at the time when you were saying things like that for the church Gosh, what would have stopped you in your tracks if someone had just said that's an outright lie or how, how can you combat that kind of blatant lying? I think that the, the, the best way of combating it is to have documents like prepare yourself beforehand and have documents oh, yeah. that you can pull up and show. But you know that what ultimately stopped me in my tracks was John Sweeney. Yes, that reporter. And John Sweeney, who has become what I consider a, a good personal friend subsequent to that, was on a complete tear about how David Miscavige had physically assaulted people. And it was my job to protect David Miscavige and the church from those allegations and to threaten him and et cetera, et cetera, and denounce his questions as insane and to deny in the most vehement way possibly. And I did that and it got to me so badly that that was ultimately the, the sort of straw that broke the camel's back that I ended up, in fact, in London after having that interchange with John Sweeney, I walked away. Wow. Mm. Because you had viscerally experienced David Miscavige hurting people. Me in included. And John Sweeney was yeah. saying to me, I have been told by people who were there that you were physically assaulted by David Miscavige. And I'm going, nope, it's all a lie. Nope, it's all a lie. And then walking wow. away thinking, why? What, mm -hmm. what, am, what purpose am I serving here? This is not what I joined the C organization for. Right. To defend the fact that someone is physically assaulting people in the name of their authority as, as the head of Scientology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, how much do you think David Miscavige is the problem? If, if LRH mm -hmm. were running Scientology, do you think things would be different? I think that things would be marginally different, but I don't think that, I don't think that, that, that the problem is just David Miscavige. I think David Miscavige is a product of Scientology. Okay. David Miscavige is the ideal, the ideal embodiment of what a true, hardcore, L. Ron Hubbard protege is. Yikes. And I think that like the distinction that I make between L. Ron Hubbard and David Miscavige is that L. Ron Hubbard had some endearing qualities to him. <laughs> <laughs> that he he could, you know, be kind and and genuinely seem concerned about the well-being of others. And I think that as he grew older and grew more isolated and more fearful of being, you know, uh, sued or prosecuted by the United States government, he became increasingly paranoid and became more and more militant and antagonistic towards everything around him. There were people everywhere that were trying to get him in his mind and it it became like he was a, a sort of a paranoid recluse. Mm -hmm. And some of his writings from, from those later years are pretty lunatic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if you read Mission Earth, if you've ever waded your way through any of that, that's like pretty crazy stuff. He was writing stuff about Scientology that is like, you know, there is a, a bulletin that he wrote, one of the last things he wrote called Pain and Sex. And it is, it is oh, like, that out sounds there. fun. 
like really, <laughs> yeah, it's really out there. And wow. I believe that he was becoming increasingly paranoid and increasingly, I've got to attack all enemies and et cetera, et cetera, that probably things wouldn't be much different than they are now. Although I think that the decline might have actually been faster. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that really shocks me is just that there has never been a release of OT9. And even if L. Ron Hubbard hadn't written it or even outlined it, I'm surprised that David Miscavige hasn't tried to synthesize it or somehow evoke L. Ron Hubbard. What do you think is keeping the church from creating or releasing OT9, and where do you think it's at? Well, there is no OT9, but you're right. It's a little surprising to me that Miscavige hasn't come up with something and said, this is it, here Mm. it is, Mm. because... Nobody is going to be able to, with certainty, say, well, no, that's not what L. Ron Hubbard said. But he has got to have a fear that, A, if he does that and it turns out to be a catastrophic, dismal failure Hmm. like OT8 has been, that everybody who has been hanging on for 30 years now waiting for OT 9 and 10 to come. And those are the people with all the money in Scientology, the guys who have had enough resources to make it all the way to the top of the bridge. And that's a half a million dollar proposition at a minimum that those people will all abandon the cause in droves. Oh, wow. And that a lot of those people will look and go, this, I don't believe, I think this is a forgery. I think this is uh, just invented. It's not really Hubbard, that the word will go round, that people will start talking, that there is enough undercurrent of disaffection in Scientology with people even at the top of the bridge that he fears that, that that providing something is going to give a basis for people to walk away. Having it held out as a carrot, mm. though some ultimately give up and say, well, I'm never going to get there, so screw it, I'm done. A lot of them hang around with the promise and the hope that this is coming at some point, and mm. that is more valuable to him than actually having something. That's really interesting. That makes it start to feel kind of like the doomsday prophecies in other cults. See this idea that Jesus is going to come back or some, some big thing is coming. We can't tell you when. Right. Or the, the, the sillier ones are the ones that say, and it's going to happen on the 13th of February, 2020. And Mm -hmm. then 13 February comes (laughs) and now what are you going to do? Exactly. That's that's a, yeah, that's, that's a riskier. A bit, yeah, that's a much riskier proposition than just the promise that, you know, Armageddon is soon to be with us. So give us your money now. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you're referencing all these people who have kind of deep seated suspicions and discontent already. Uh, sounds like this bridge is on pretty shaky foundations. What do you see happening with Scientology? What can we hope for? Do we have any chance of them losing their tax-exempt status, or are people going to start leaving in droves? Well, I think people are already leaving in droves. I think that they don't leave necessarily loudly and publicly. I think that they just leave. Mm. They disappear into the night and throw the mail in the trash and all the magazines and the promotional pieces that they get, they all just go straight into the round file. I think that there is a growing likelihood that ultimately that the tax exempt status of Scientology will be revisited by the IRS because I think that there is increasing pressure from people in general and because there's increasing pressure from people in general that ultimately translates into political pressure. And sooner or later, some congressman or senator is going to take this upon themselves as a cause and recognize that there is political value in doing and saying something that will result in the IRS reviewing Scientology's exempt status. And I think the more things there are that are exposed that are abhorrent to people that 
tax-exempt money is being used to hire private investigators at $10,000 a week to follow David Miscavige's father or, you know, $20 million paid to private investigators to follow Pat Broker for 20 years or whatever. And people start to recognize that they are actually subsidizing Mm -hmm. that. Your tax dollars are subsidizing those activities and that this is not what tax-exempt organizations should be spending their money on, that that will ultimately result in that tax exemption being lost. So speaking of critics, what do you think of this sort of like Scientology watch culture? Do you think it gets a little voyeuristic? And I'm including us in this, of course. Is there anything that critics (laughs) do wrong that you'd like to see righted? Yeah, I think that one of the things that I don't like is I don't like people targeting like the low level stuff, singling them out for derision and hatred. Mm-hmm. And just because they wear their funny waistcoats and are standing on the street, I don't think that that's enough reason to give them a hard time. And I don't like that. I don't like it when I see it. I don't like it when that happens. So that that's probably the one mm-hmm. thing that I, I okay. find objectionable. When I meet those people on the street, which is a lot because they live in Hollywood, they try to, you know, they try to hand me literature and I've just come to say, Oh, thank you. I think I've been declared. And that shuts down the conversation immediately with most of them. But there was a guy the other day who followed me and said, why did you say that? Why did you say you were declared? I know you're not. Yeah. What do you think was hmm. going on there? I think that he was uh, practicing his, what he's been taught to, you know, people are going to have excuses. Don't buy their excuses. Don't accept their first attempt to rebuff you if you you know you've got to to be persistent and keep at it and think of something to say and i talk to people who are former jehovah's witnesses and they talk a lot about what the training is that jehovah's witnesses go through in order to knock on doors and how they learn to accept the rejection and to have a response that gets people engaged in some way in talking to them. And Scientology does a similar thing. And I think that's what it was, Kari. I think he was just like, oh, this is some wise mm-hmm. wise guy who read on the internet that the way to handle mm. people that approach them on the street is to say I'm declared, but she probably doesn't uh, even know what that means. Well, how do we find out if we were declared? To that point. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm providing you with the certainty yeah, as a former yeah. spokesman uh, for the Church <laughs> of Scientology. <laughs> I mean, that's as yeah. good as you're going to get. You, they don't issue public right. statements anymore. There's no more of these golden rods because they're too embarrassing. Right. So it's all done verbally now, and it's just well, you hear about it from someone who heard about it from someone who found out that you weren't supposed to be friends right. on Facebook Right. Well, anymore. I would accept that. Right. I mean, I keep showing up, and they say to leave then, and I say, well, can I come back? And they're like, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so strange. I keep saying, listen, if you don't well, want me here, that's okay. Just tell me. And they still won't even tell me that, Mike. Right. Well, they're worried. So many mixed they're worried. messages. Worried, they're worried that you're going to say what uh, they right. say uh-huh. on the air, and then they're going to look bad, and someone's going to give them a hard time. So they're careful right. not to say anything. All right, I'll just keep showing up. So, so much for masters of communication. Masters of communication, yeah. <laughs> Is there any effective way to respond to people who try to body route you on the street and hand you stuff? Because I live in Los Angeles still, and that, that really is like a monthly occurrence that I'll run into a Scientologist. Uh, is there anything kind of compassionate or nice or thought-provoking that you could say to plant a seed for a Scientologist on the street? I think that being you know, just generally polite and saying, I really think that you should inform yourself of the other side of the equation is probably about mm-hmm. as good as you're going to do. And it's not going to, not really going to accomplish much, but it's If they hear it from a bunch of people. Yeah. Right. yeah. That's great advice. Well, Mike, I have one last theory I want to run by you. Okay. So there were a yes. few people we met at the LA org who 
told us that they weren't clear yet. Maybe actually, I think there were only two people who told us that they weren't clear yet. And both of them still seemed gregarious and emotionally tied in and felt like, for lack of a better term, felt like normal people. And then the people who were (laughs) held up to us as the people who were clear, who were really far along the bridge, they would have this very robotic, stoic presence. And uh, my theory was maybe this is part of what auditors are looking for in a clear is a person who's a little emotionally detached. Uh, does that resonate for you? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think so. I, th- I think that I think probably <laughs> the, the truth right. is that those uh, people who are further along are more stoically convinced that they know everything mm, that there is okay. to know. And that they don't need to hear from anybody else or, or explain anything to anybody else because they've got all the answers themselves. Okay. So get, getting to clear saps your personality, not losing your personality gets you to clear. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess the, the reason it made sense to me is that this whole auditing process is about you know, getting your emotional reactions to be near zero for horrible things that happen to you. So it made sense to me, okay, mm-hmm. maybe that sort of detaches you from your emotional intelligence. Yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> it's all right. You don't I have don't to know. validate my theory. It's <laughs> I all don't know. right. Like, sorry, Carrie. <laughs> no, it's fine. Thank you for your candor. <laughs> Do you have any more plans for aftermath? You've already covered so much ground and so many different aspects of Scientology. Is there is there more to come? I can't say that there is more to come with respect to aftermath itself because there is no, you know, formalized that that's not an announcement that I will be making if such a thing happens. That's an announcement A and E will be making. But there is plenty more to come with respect to Scientology. That's a never ending story. Mm -hmm. There is a there is an unlimited a number of things that can be covered and material to go through. So I've got my blog and I keep going with that every day. And there's all sorts of other things that happen and are happening. And those will continue to happen without doubt. Fantastic. Well, speaking of which, uh, where can everyone find you? Hanging out in my home. <laughs> Everybody God, go to I Mike Rinder's I don't remember. Home. What's it called? Mike Rinder's blog. Yeah, MikeRindersBlog.org. I think that's what it's called. Mike Rinders blog. See, I never look for the URL because it just comes up on my screen. So I'm pretty sure it's MikeRindersBlog.org. That is correct. Student hat. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, you... I've got some misunderstood words I need to look up. So excuse me, I'm going to go off and clear every definition and the fair. derivation. Well, you're doing fantastic work, Mike. Thank you so much. And uh, we really appreciate you talking to us. You're very welcome, guys. It's actually a pleasure Thank to you talk so to much. you. Well, that's it for our show. Our administrative manager is Ian Kramer. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton. If you'd like to support what we do, uh, help keep the show going, please go to MaximumFun.org forward slash donate, uh, where you can support us on a monthly basis. It helps us so much, and we hugely appreciate it. And you can follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash OnRack, O-N-R-A-C. Or on Twitter at OnoPodcast, O-H-N-O-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. <laughs> and you can also leave us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast that helps us so much. It's a great way to support the show if you're not able to financially give. And remember. People ask me, I don't know if they, I'm sure they ask you, that now that we're out of Scientology, do we still think like Scientologists? I think that I still think in Scientological terms and it's hard for me to shake those things. And I think most people who are in cults find that. Like they don't actually know what they think. It's like, do I, you, there's an immediate Scientological answer or a judgment or something. And then you're like, wait a minute, do I really think that? What, what do you think? <laughs> yes, is my immediate answer because I think that there are a lot of things that are ingrained in my way of viewing the world that I don't know are, I'm ever gonna get rid of. Yeah. And on the other hand, I believe that the thing that Scientology takes away from you is compassion, real compassion for others. And I have tried to cure myself of a lack of compassion. And I don't believe that I look at people these days with the same lack of compassion that I did when I was 
really inside the mindset of Scientology. Film critic April Wolf and host of the Maximum Fun podcast, Switchblade Sisters. Do you love genre films? Do you love female filmmakers? Do you love discussions on craft? If your answer is yes, you'll love Switchblade Sisters. Every episode, I invite one female filmmaker on, and we talk in depth about their fave genre film and how it influenced their own work. So we're talking horror, action, sci-fi, fantasy, bizarro, and exploitation cinema. Mothers, lock up your sons, because the Switchblade Sisters are coming for you. Available at MaximumFun.org or wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, everybody. I'm Justin McElroy. And I'm Dr. Sydney McElroy. Every week, we release a medical history podcast called Sawbones. We go over the history of the dumbest, grossest, weirdest stuff humans have been doing to each other since the dawn of mankind. But it's a funny show. But it's also so disgusting and stomach-turning, you won't believe it. But it's also, like, <laughs> funny. It's funny. It is the wildest, grossest, nastiest stuff you can imagine. It's a real hoot. It's called Sawbones, and we release it every week on iTunes, wherever podcasts are sold, and right here on MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.